And in fact, you know, even, even my own dress, I'm dressed in a tie and coat this morning. Why? Is there something more spiritual about that? Some would say there is. I, I don't think that's the case. It best matches what I, what I think and what the elders of the church think is going to enable in, in our culture, in this place, enable people to hear the message. There's some who come in and go, it's not wearing a tie, so it can't be a real pastor. Others of you who you know, think, well, it doesn't matter if he wears a tie, then you're not having any trouble listening to me. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3, and if you will stand with me, we'll read verses 1 through 12. We're getting more and more familiar with these verses. We'll be in them for uh, probably another week or so. So my prayer is that as as with each piece of Scripture, that these truths will sink deep into your heart and life. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Please be seated. Imagine if you had this on your tombstone. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and he departed with no one's regret, and they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tomb of the kings. Well, that's the epitaph for King Jehoram. He was one of the kings of Judah. He was in the line of David. He had that that pedigree that David was his ancestor, one who was supposed to uphold all that the Davidic kinghood stood for, and yet his end, after eight years of reigning, is that he departed with no one's regret. Now, my prayer is that my life would never end that way. Certainly, it was probably his regret, but that seems to be it. No one else cared. 
And unfortunately, I think it's very easy for us to live our lives seemingly as Jehoram did, and many, perhaps most do, focused on ourselves, our own dreams, what we will accomplish, what we will do, rather than considering the bigger purpose for which we have been called. As a believer, it's essential that we step back and view our lives in that bigger picture. See, we've been bought with a price. We've been commissioned for a greater task than simply living our life to please ourselves or to accomplish our own goals. And so when was the last time that you evaluated your life and how it is fulfilling the bigger purpose that God has for you as a believer? And this is an evaluation that it doesn't happen one time during your life. It's a constant consideration of how is every part of my life actually fulfilling the bigger purpose that God has for me? Because it is so easy to just live from day to day forgetting the bigger picture of what God has given us to do. Well, and what is that purpose? That purpose is to glorify God by building his kingdom through the proclamation and living of the gospel to a dying world. That's your purpose. And it's everything that you're doing based around that purpose. Otherwise, in relationship to the truths of the kingdom of God, you may be in danger of dying with no one's regret. That is, no one that truly would matter. Those who would truly understand what you should have been doing if you aren't doing those things, if you weren't accomplishing that task, then you die without their regret, certainly. I pray that that would not be the case for us. And the question this morning, as we consider the nature of the life of John the Baptist, is will our lives make an impact? Are you making an impact? Are you accomplishing and seeking to direct your entire life around the bigger picture goal that God has for you, rather than the mold that the world would push you into, or that your own desires and dreams would, the path that those would take you down? So what we'll see this morning is that our lives are not to be lived for ourselves, but for the purpose of pleasing God by entering his kingdom through true repentance and proclaiming that kingdom to a dying world. Again, our, our lives are not to be lived for ourselves, but for the purpose of pleasing God by entering his kingdom through true repentance and proclaiming that kingdom to a dying world. And John the Baptist gives us a beautiful picture of that. One who lived the message that he was proclaiming, proclaimed the proper message, and his life was used then for the glory of God and seeing people drawn into the kingdom so that they too might have hope and life in Christ. We've already been talking about his message as we began in chapter 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came. So he bursts upon the scene as the herald of the king of kings. This is the most unique time in history up to this point where the king of kings was coming to walk upon the earth, to, to proclaim his kingdom, to establish the foundations for it. The king was coming, and in fact, the king was here and so he says the kingdom is at hand. Jesus was about to actually come to John to be baptized himself. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. His ministry is about to begin. So the herald of the king of kings comes and proclaims the message. And we, we've been discussing the unusual nature in which that happened. He comes preaching, not with some other maybe more impressive method, but he comes proclaiming, speaking that message. And he came into the wilderness, not to the populated areas, not to the capital not where everyone might be. He came out into the wilderness of Judea, it says. He comes really in a way that causes others to have to come out to him, to come hear that message that he was proclaiming. And the most difficult thing that he was doing, or the hardest thing about what he was doing, was not even so much the method and not the place. It was the message itself, right? He was proclaiming, not come and have all your needs met, everything fulfilled. That wasn't the initial proclamation. The initial proclamation was repent, give up. Lay down your sin. Lay down your own life. Take mine. Recognize the nature of your heart, the nature of, a condition, of your condition in the eyes of a holy God, in the eyes of the king who is coming. And unless we understand the king 
then we'll never understand this message. But until we know what it means, we understand his standard, we understand his character and nature, and, and we compare our character and nature to that, then we never will truly be able to enter into the kingdom. Because we'll feel like perhaps, well, I already belong in the kingdom. That's what the Jews thought. Or simply I've done, surely I've done enough good things to enter in. And that's where so much of the world is today. And certainly that's where the world was in the time of John. The Jews saying, I'm already in the kingdom. The scribes and Pharisees saying, we've already done, we're already righteous. We've already accomplished everything necessary. Not only are we Jews, but we also have the right standard. And then everyone else around thinking that there was some way that they could enter into the kingdom. And John comes saying, the only way to get into the kingdom is to repent. And we talked about the timing of the kingdom. He said it's at hand. It doesn't mean that it had come in the sense it had fully come and everything was, was to be done for the kingdom. It's at hand and that the king is about to arrive. He's going to live out. He's going to, to, on the earth while he is there, establish all the necessary things for the rest of his kingdom or the, the really the fullness of his kingdom. He's beginning it here, right? This aspect of the kingdom, this phase, that's the timing. The king is at hand. He's going to establish and lay the foundation while he is here on earth for everything else that will come in the kingdom, everything else that was promised, everything that's been prophesied. And then last week, we talked about the nature of that kingdom, that it has to be entered. We're not born into it. We do not ethnically get into it. We're not able to do it because we, we are surrounded by other people that, that are believers. No, we have to enter into the kingdom personally, and that there is a standard that has to be met in order to get into that kingdom. This only makes sense. The king is the one who sets the standard. And in order to be in his kingdom, in order to be welcomed in his kingdom, then you have to meet the standard. And we talked about that last week. It is the standard, not of some good things, not of a mental acknowledgement, not of certain information that we know, not of a place where we grew up, none of those things. It is the standard of absolute perfection. Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We looked at it from the, I guess, the the positive side, which is that, that you must be poor in spirit. It is the poor in spirit who are able to enter the kingdom. They are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. And so this standard must be met. And that is really, that's shocking to us because we're always sure we can get in. We're always sure that there's something that we could do that would be enough or some character, some something about our lives or its circumstances that would enable us to receive the king or enable us to be in his kingdom. And you see that when you go witnessing. You see that when you talk to individuals in our nation. Yes, we're already in, or yes, we're going to get in, or certainly God can't keep me out. But they don't realize that his standard is absolute perfection. And that's why the king must be received, because it's the king himself who enables us to meet the standard. The king brings the standard to us, as it were. He, he, he keeps it where it is. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to change the nature of the standard. But what he does is, I'm going to enable you to meet it. But only if you receive me, only if you know me. Remember, this is a personal relationship with this king of kings. And in entering into relationship with him through repentance and faith, we are granted the status, the righteousness of Christ, the ability to meet that standard and enter into the kingdom. And that's the only way. It flows through repentance, understanding that we fall short, understanding that we deserve eternal hell, understanding that we have grieved a holy God and crying out for the only solution to that, that having fallen short of his standard, and that is to receive the king himself, the work of the king, as we will see progressing forward, the work of Christ on the cross for us. So that's the nature of the kingdom. Now, let's turn a bit and look at the, the nature of this one who is making the proclamation. I said we would do that several weeks ago. We haven't looked much at John himself. Well, now we receive some information about the herald himself. So first, let's look at the prediction of John the Baptist. Right? Why is he coming? Why is he coming like he is? 
Well, all of this was predicted in the Old Testament. And remember, one of Matthew's primary purposes in writing this book is to prove that Jesus was the real Messiah. Well, in order for Jesus to be the real Messiah, he had to have the properly predicted herald. He had to have the right forerunner. Because there were many proclaiming to be Jesus or to be Messiahs. There were many coming to say, you know, uh, I am the one. Well, in order for all of this to fit together, in order for the Jews to properly believe that Jesus was the Messiah, he has to have the right herald because this was predicted as well. So in verse 3, it says, For this is the one, and that is John the Baptist, this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So this is the prediction of John the Baptist, and the one who predicted this was Isaiah the prophet. And he specifically named here as a prophet that would that already laid the groundwork or predicted that the Messiah who would come would have a forerunner. Right? And, and the content of that prophecy is laid out here. Right? That he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, making ready the way of the Lord and making his path straight. He's quoting, Matthew is quoting from Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 6. And I'll just read those to you. Those verses, uh, Isaiah writes, a voice is calling. Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is like grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. So he's quoting from Isaiah's prediction but it's fascinating that Isaiah's prediction really in, in Isaiah 40 is a prediction of the ultimate restoration of Israel. What will happen when the Lord comes, returns them to their land, establishes his kingdom on earth. But Matthew takes that and he applies it to this first coming of Christ and he applies it to the one who would come and make that proclamation. Why does he do that? Well, because in establishing and Jesus coming the first time, it is the only way that that final restoration can actually happen. And we've seen this several times with the prophecies that Matthew applies to the life of Christ. He says they have an initial fulfillment or, or a beginning that wasn't even seen in the Old Testament, or it was not clearly seen, of that first time when Christ comes, where he's establishing, really laying the foundation for his kingdom, his coming kingdom, in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So he takes that proclamation of the final kingdom really as beginning now. And he applies that to the message that John came preaching. Craig Blomberg says it this way. The larger context of Isaiah 40 to 66 discloses that the prophecy depicts part of Israel's end time restoration. So the messianic era, that is the time of the gospels, the kingdom when Christ uh, was on earth, the millennial kingdom, and eventually even the new heavens and new earth, they often blend together in what we call a, a characteristic prophetic foreshortening. That is that all the events seem to be kind of viewed in one as one, when really there are multiple pieces to that event. It's kind of like when you get, if you're standing on, on a mountain, you look up and you see all the, the tops of the mountains, but you don't see what's down in between them. That's one of the ways, that's one of the ways we're able to understand Old Testament prophecy. And so this is one of those valleys, as it were, where this is the first part of Israel's final restoration in Christ's coming to bring his salvation. And so this is, is the right forerunner. John has the right message. But notice, it says that Isaiah said this prophet, or excuse me, this forerunner will come saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now that's supposed to be his message, but what did John actually say? We already have his message. And he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Is that a different message? 
No, it's exactly the same. That's the issue. And we understand, we've talked a little bit about when a king was to come, and that's what's being referenced by Isaiah, right? And what's referenced in this prophecy, when a, when a literal king or when a, when a human king would come, he would prepare his way, someone would go ahead of him and make sure that there wasn't any, any impediment to his progress. If a bridge was out, that was taken care of, right? If, if there were things in the way, those were moved out of the way because the king deserves the best entrance. And so the king doesn't just go and do that. Someone goes ahead of him and prepares. So the way that the... Uh, the way was made ready for the Lord, his path, and his paths made straight as everything straightened out so he would have, the, he would have the, the quickest possible access to the place he was going. That's the idea. There's only one way that could happen, and that is repentance. It is the mountain of sin, as it were, the nature of uh, who we are apart from a holy God. That being removed is the way that the king makes entrance the recognition of that sin. That's why repent is the message because that is the means by which the heart is prepared for the entrance of the king. And we've been speaking of that over the past several, several weeks. Ezra 9.6 puts this in, in almost in physical terms when he's speaking of the sin of Israel as he laments over it. He says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to you for our iniquities have risen over our heads and our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Talk about a mountain. Talk about an impediment to the king of kings, as it were. You cannot receive him. You cannot enter into his kingdom. You cannot have a right relationship with him when your sin is over your head because he's perfect and holy. And the greatness of the sin is what brings about the need for the the fullness of repentance. And so the one who comes, the one who prepares the way, has to remove, as it were, or, or, or provide the means by which the mountain of sin is removed, and that's through repentance. So that's what John says. That's how he is making the path straight, by proclaiming the need to recognize sin and to repent of it. Now, he goes on to say then, verse, uh, or just the end of that verse where he is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is what John said about himself. And as we maybe dig a little bit deeper into the nature of the forerunner to Christ, there's a couple of things that, that might come to your mind, maybe that you're aware of and that will we'll hit later on in the book of Matthew, but that I just want to touch base on here. There are several predictions, this Isaiah is being one, there are other predictions of the forerunner that would come in the Old Testament. One of them is Malachi chapter 4. Let me read that one. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. And in the book of Luke, uh, Luke presents that as a prophecy of John the Baptist. It says, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. See, when John the Baptist comes, he looks a lot like Elijah. We're going to talk about his clothing, about his food, where he comes, and that's all purposeful. There's a reason for that, because he is coming, as it were, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And this was somewhat confusing to the people, because they're like, they knew the predictions, they knew their Bible. So Elijah's supposed to come, so later on in Matthew, when John is put in prison, ultimately John is beheaded, the people are asking, now, wait a minute, where, where was Elijah? If you're really the king, if you're really the forerunner, where's Elijah? They, they say in, in Matthew 17, 11, he answered them, Elijah is coming and will restore all things, but I say to you that Elijah already came. Seems confusing. And they didn't recognize him, but did him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. In Matthew eleven fourteen, Jesus said, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is the Elijah who was to come. 
So the question I'm going to raise and try to answer just very briefly here is, so was John Elijah or did somehow this prophecy get missed? Was he, wasn't he? Well, the answer is yes. That is, he is the one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. He is the one who presents or presents the, full, the, the king as he comes his, the first time. But as Jesus said, right, then there is a, he's going to have a second coming and there will be a second herald to him. And the Bible reveals to us that that will be Elijah himself. John the Baptist comes first in the spirit and power of Elijah. And, and that's why Jesus says, if you will accept it, he is Elijah. Right? He is the one who came as a forerunner to me, the king, in my first coming. But that doesn't undo the fact that I'm going to come again. And Elijah himself will yet come, and he will be the one who introduces my second coming. Again, you see that prophetic foreshortening. The things that were not specifically laid out in the Old Testament. Elijah's going to come. Yes, he did. But essentially, Elijah has two, he's got two representations here. One, John the Baptist, and then Elijah himself at the end of time. So yes, he is Elijah. That is, he is the one who comes with that same purpose and his spirit and power and presents the Messiah the first time. But no, he is not the Elijah that will come before the restoration of national Israel. There is yet another time when Christ will return and the forerunner will come again. So we see that we're not undoing prophecies. We're not conflating them saying, well, see, John was it. There's no more kingdom. We already had the first forerunner. There's not going to be a second aspect to it. There is. Jesus himself said it. And it appears to us, it appears from Scripture, that Elijah himself will come. And there will be that time when he shows up as the Lord establishes his kingdom on earth. All right, so you might not have been asking that question, but I thought I'd try to answer it for you as best I can. And we'll talk about that more as we work through the book of Matthew. So that is the description, uh, or really the prediction of John the Baptist. Now let's talk about the description of John the Baptist. And this is also unusual because when Jesus comes, we don't really get much of a description of his clothing or of his, of his food habits, none of that. And yet we get that for John. Look at verse 4. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. In fact, we don't have a, a, a description of many of the, of, of the Bible characters. And yet here we have the description of John. Why? Well, I think the first reason is he's supposed to be coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. He is the one who is the initial forerunner who essentially represents Elijah in the first coming of Christ. And so he looks like Elijah, and that's why we're given that. In fact, the people were making that connection as they come and they see John dressed in this garment of camel's hair with his leather belt around his waist. Second Kings 1, when there's a man describing, someone met me on the road and he gave you this message and then there's a response back. They say, so what did he look like? And the guy answers him. He says, Obadiah the prophet answers him and says, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle about his loins. And he said, that's Elijah the Tishbite. So he's defined in many ways by his clothing. He was a, he was a prophet, and yet he was a prophet that was uh, rugged in his appearance, really rugged in the extreme. So John comes looking very similar to that. And he comes really with this dress, this garment of camel's hair that would have been, you're not going to find that in your, you know, in your high-end clothing departments because camel's hair was not very comfortable. It wasn't like this was the most comfortable thing John could have worn. In fact, it's a little bit like that burr that gets in your sock or if you have that, you know, that, that wool that is, is it, you know, it hasn't been carefully um, cured so that when you put it on, it's nice and, and cozy for you. Instead, it's like all, all the time you were wearing this, it's bugging you. That seems to be kind of the idea. He's a rough man. Even his clothing is uncomfortable. His message is uncomfortable. What he wears is uncomfortable. He's got this leather belt around it. And then the description of his food. So then his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, that's not saying that's all he ever ate. 
right? Simply is that was seems to be his main subsistence. He's out there in the wilderness and he's eating these this locust and this honey. Two things about this. We kind of think of that as, oh, now that's that's gross. You're eating bugs. You're eating insects. That that's unclean. Well, actually, according to Old Testament law, which remember John was an Old Testament prophet in that sense, locusts are actually clean animals. They're they're insects that you're allowed to eat. It says in Leviticus eleven twenty two. It says, these of them, that is of insects, you may eat, the locust in its kind, the devastating locust in its kind, and the cricket in its kind, the grasshopper in its kind. Feel free, right? And then honey was a, was a, a standard staple in the Old Testament, and, and certainly during the time of Christ as well. Yeah, it says locust, but notice it says wild honey. And I sometimes, what's the difference between wild honey and like normal honey? How do you domesticate it? Well, I guess the best way to describe domesticating honey is putting it in a jar. Right, it's domesticated. So wild honey seems to be, right, no, it wasn't processed, you know, it wasn't from the vendor in Jerusalem. He was going to the hive and getting the honey out. It seems to be that. So this wild man in this, you know, this garment of camel's hair with his leather belt going to the hives themselves and like getting, you know, grabbing the honey out of it and then snatching the locusts. I, I don't know how he ate them. He's bouncing around. Again, I have no idea. It doesn't tell us. He gets them somehow. Maybe he cooks. Them. Who knows what he does? I don't think he's just grabbing them, popping in his mouth while he's walking around. But nonetheless, this is, this, this is his clothing, this is his food, and again, this is told to us because this fits the ministry that John had. And I want us to be careful here. We tend to kind of, you know, we'll look at, well, maybe we should all have then belts of leather and wear camel's hair. Maybe we should all eat locusts. And sometimes even people take Old Testament prescriptions and rules and say, well, this must have been, John the Baptist did this because this made him more spiritual. Or if you wore the camel's hair. Now, not too many people wear an uncomfortable clothing. I haven't really seen that fad around. Let's all be uncomfortable. Well, some people do, I guess. But, you know, the food fads are around. If you eat this kind of food, this Old Testament food. But I tell you, in all of the food fads I've seen in the New Testament, I've never seen, or, or now in our, our, our culture, I've never seen a locust fad. I'm waiting for that. When people go back to the Old Testament, they say, well, we'll be more healthy if we do this, and this would be more spiritual. Sometimes they do that. I haven't seen this diet yet. If you go on the locust diet, now it might be out there. Some of you are going, well, that's my diet. I, I doubt that's probably true because this one, you know, doesn't seem to be very palatable. And so be careful again of just taking this description saying, well, that's what every spiritual person would do. And there's a really strong reason to be careful of that because Jesus came in a very opposite manner. The reason John came like this is because he had a particular message that he was bringing in the sense that he was an Old Testament prophet. He is matching that. He is the, the coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. So he comes with this food and with this clothing. When Jesus, when he comes, what, what did the Pharisees say about him? He comes eating and drinking. John comes, right, not eating or drinking as it were. He's eating, he's eating locusts and wild honey. He's not in the norm in the establishment. And so John was dressed this way because it was his goal in bringing repentance. Again, all of this was the Old Testament thunderous proclamation of repent. And John MacArthur says this, John's very dress, food, and lifestyle were in themselves a rebuke to the self-satisfied and self-indulgent religious leaders. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, and the priests, the one who were pursuing the rich things of their day. And it was also a rebuke to most of the people though they may not have been able to indulge themselves in the privileges of their leaders, nonetheless admired them and longed for the same advantages. So John was wearing what was appropriate, right? Not only to the, the words of his message, but the time when he was proclaiming it, right? The place where he was proclaiming it, all of that was appropriate for him. It isn't like we're saying, well, well we're going to have to go to camel's hair, or even that we're going to go out in the wilderness, right? That's the way God chose through John we don't necessarily draw a, a direct parallel to how we are going to do our ministry. And by the way, we also are careful 
not to think that if somehow if, if we do this or if we dress a certain way or or have certain external things that that will somehow make people either either accept the message or will cause them to like us or cause them to continue to listen to us because you remember what happened to John for a while they enjoyed his message for a while, they, they come, and that again, that's the purpose. God was designing that for this initial presentation. But later on in Matthew 18, we find out, and particularly what the religious leaders said about John, but even the people, it says, for John came neither eating or drinking, and they say, he has a demon. That external presentation isn't what is going to win people to Christ. They're not going to like you because you somehow, you know, either are opposite them in your clothing, or, you know, and remember what they said of Jesus, the contrast there is Jesus came eating and drinking, and they said, he's a Glutton. He's a drunkard and a glutton. Again, the external form is not the issue. It is the message ultimately that is being presented. It can come in a variety of forms. And in fact, you know, even, even my own dress, I'm, I'm dressed in a tie and coat this morning. Why? Is there something more spiritual about that? Some would say there is. I, I don't think that's the case. It best matches what I, what I think and what the elders of the church think is going to enable in, in our culture, in this place, enable people to hear the message. There's some who come in and go, he's not wearing a tie, so he can't be a real pastor. Others of you who you know, think, well, it doesn't matter if he wears a tie, then you're not having any trouble listening to me. So again, it's not that this makes me more spiritual. The dress itself is somehow spiritual. The message is primary, and then the clothing meets the need, right? It just depends on where you are. And that's why you don't have to take American dress and American eating and American customs to other places when you present the Word of God. American stuff, the culture of what we wear and what we eat doesn't make us spiritual. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King. And the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.